0: There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Amen. Oh, the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you again for the chance to gather this morning. Thank you for your word and pray. God, would you by your spirit accomplish your purposes for in us this morning. Father, speak to and through Darren in Psalm 14. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear from you. You make it clear uh, who you are and who we are and God, what our lives are to be about as a result. We need you, God, to do that work in us. We love you and pray to Jesus. name. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Um, That was a little weak. Good Good morning. Yeah, that's much better. I feel alive now. Um, yeah, thank you for everybody who was praying for me. Um, it, it's been a really difficult week, and I've been a little behind. Um, but, you know, as I was praying, I was sitting down over there praying, as um, Jeff was talking, and I think God just reminded me, he was like, dude, I've been, I've been preaching much, much longer than you. And I've got this. And so, yeah, so pardon me if I'm a little uh, discombobulated, but we'll get through this together this morning. Um, yeah, my name's Darren, and so, uh, like Jeff was saying, I was an intern here. I lead an MC, live very close to here, like within walking distance. So, if you're interested, um, just let me know after the gathering. I also teach social studies uh, here at West Middle School, eighth grade. And so that's kind of like, and I play on the band occasionally, um, but that's kind of me. That's, that's my thing. Um, as we jump into this passage, um, I, I guess I kind of want to pose a question for us. In your opinion, right, what do you think is the biggest issue of our day? What do you think is the biggest issue of our day? Uh, Depending on where you look, right? Some people might say it's, well, you know, poverty. Or some people might say, well, it's not enough education. Some people might say, well, you know, people are just kind of mean towards each other, right? People don't have enough opportunity or access to resources. Whatever you might say it is, There's lots of different perspectives. Um, People fuss, people argue, people write articles and dissertations over what some of these big issues are. But here in this passage, I think we see the key. I think we see the root. I think we see the foundation. We are given a God's eye view of the situation. You know, there's a bird's eye view, right, where you step up and look over an issue, and then there's the God's eye view, where you're 1,000, thousand, two thousand, fifty thousand feet above, where everything looks different, and that's what we see this morning, and this psalm is unique, because it's more of a, it's more of a meditation rather than a lament or excuse me, it's more of a meditation and a lament, rather than a sort of song of praise, which is similar to the other songs. This is something closer to what we might find in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or something like that. Yet this is a song. It's meant to be sung. It's meant to be reflective. It's meant to pull back the curtain on the human condition. And in, in fact, most really good songs do just that, Right? But unlike the songs of our day, this one says something really, really, really disturbing about us. And it's far from flattering, right? And we'll get into that. In terms of context, some scholars believe this song, Psalm 14, was written by David. Maybe it was popularized, and maybe finalized during the Babylonian uh, exile. We're not totally sure. Some people think it was written by David and just... Way before that exile. Either way, the main point that David is making here is pretty clear. He's lamenting over all of the evil in the world. And he's also reminding us that God will save despite all of it. And so, the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he's shown. Four things from this God's eye view. First thing that he has shown is the essence of sin. The second thing that he has shown is the extent of sin. Thirdly, he has shown the effects of sin. And lastly, he has shown the hope for sinners. And, and I kind of want to structure our time together this morning in, in that same format. Right? Now, number one, the essence of sin. Secondly, the extent of sin. Thirdly, the effects of sin. And lastly, the hope for sinners. Verses 1 through 2 here. And follow along with me uh, in your Bibles if you, if you are able. This is Psalm 14, this is Psalm 14 verses 1 through 2. In these verses, we see the essence of sin. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You know, there's something profound about this. Right? Because the psalmist is saying, look, there there are certain people who are willing to go so far as to say... There is no God, and they are called fools. Oh, and there's so much I could say about this verse, but I wanna start off by explaining something very, very simple, very fundamental, which is that the fool is connected to the one who is corrupt and who does no good. And so the psalmist, in connecting these, these words together, he's telling us something about the essence of sin, He's saying if you really want to know what sin is, it's foolishness. To be a sinner is to be a fool. And to be a fool is to be a sinner. Now you have to be careful here because when Scripture talks about being a fool, it's not talking about your IQ, right? It's not talking about your intelligence. You can be brilliant, but be a fool, biblically speaking. You can have a 35, 34 on the ACT, whatever it is, and you can still be a fool, biblically speaking. You can be the world's greatest philosopher and still be a fool. Here's how this works it starts in the heart, it starts in the heart, and goes forth from the heart in a life lived. In a philosophy lived out that says there is no God. He's just not there. He's just not present. See, the heart is is more than just this place where you just feel things, right? The heart is the center of who you are, it's the very thing that that motivates you. In fact, the heart, biblically speaking, has, has a mind and a will of its own. We don't talk like that today. But that's what the text is getting at. And every time we sin, we deny God's judgment. We deny His imminence, We deny His presence. Despite evidence to the contrary, that's what the psalmist means when he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, the essence of sin is foolishness that denies God's very reality. Once again, foolishness. Let me me be clear here. This is not a word that describes your mental capacity, but a word that describes your moral compass. And it's this foolishness that sits at the core of every sin that we commit. And the implications of this are, are huge, right? Let me just mention two of them briefly here. One of the implications from this passage is that People ultimately sin because they want to, right? Nobody ever sins because they don't want to, or because somebody made them do it, or because it's just the way that you were raised, or it's just because somebody else did something to you. When I sin, when you sin, when we sin, it's because we want to in a very deep and profound way. This also means that when people deny God, whether it's someone who thinks Christianity is total, totally rubbish or an atheist, it's only be, ultimately, I should say, it's ultimately because of the heart. It's not only because of intellectual reasons, it's ultimately because of people not wanting God to be there. And so whether you're an atheist or agnostic, there's a sense in which we all know God exists. And the proof is found in the the fact that everybody worships. Everybody worships something. We're always worshiping something. We're always putting something at the center of our lives. We're always looking to something or someone or some experience to give us meaning and value and worth. That's what the Bible calls worship. Worship. And the problem is, is that instead of worshiping the true and the living God, according to Romans 1, we worship idols. And so we all know that God exists. Because we ascribe deity to almost everything but God. And so that's the essence of sin. But verses 2 through 3 show us the extent of sin. Let's read it carefully. Verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. The main point of these verses is that the extent of sin reaches everyone at their core. It's not some sort of issue. It's, it's a real, deep centered issue. Here we see the problem is God sees it. The Lord is portrayed as looking down, seeing if anyone understands, if anybody has their life together. <laughs> He's looking to see if anybody has got this. If anybody is seeking him. And the answer, no In the Hebrew, it means no one. That's it, no one. Stop right there. No, not me, not you, not them. No one. And this is the same language that's used in Genesis 6-5 where, where God is looking down in the time of Noah saying, if anybody's righteous, And no one is righteous. Everybody is screwed up. Everybody is evil. In fact, Genesis 6-5 says that God saw the wickedness of man. And that it was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart. Was only evil continually. I mean, he could... God could have stopped halfway through the verse and I would have gotten the point. Right? But he goes all the way. And it's this evil that the psalmist picks up on. It says, it has corrupted every person. Here's how one commentator describes the process. And it's a little long, but try to stay with me. One commentator says this. He says, the will shapes the character, which becomes corrupt. Character emerges in actions or deeds. And action finds allies. And it turns out that there is no one who is unaffected by this fall. This is how God sees humanity. And to make sure we get the message, he repeats it in verses 2 through 3. Everyone in their will has decided not to seek God, but to turn from him. Everyone's character has become corrupt. Action follows, and the infection is universal. This passage describes the inner and outer effects of the fool's rebellious lifestyle. As corruption pollutes the inner world of the wicked, their deeds extend that infection to those outside. God surveys the creation from his heavenly vantage point. Humans are so corrupt and have so corrupted their environment that there is no longer any redeeming social value expressed by their very existence. It's quite a way of saying it. Well, our problem is much wider than we could imagine, because every human being that has ever lived is desperately wicked. And our problem is much deeper than we could ever imagine, because every human being that has ever existed is corrupt to the very core. This is the extent of our sin. Now... Let's take a break. This does seem a little extreme. I mean, just at first glance, right? I mean, was David having a bad day? Did he forget to go to the chiropractor or something? I, I mean, surely not every person is a bad guy. Surely we don't need religion to be moral people. After all, don't we all know somebody who lives a pretty moral and upright life who's not religious at all? Well, you really have to understand verse 2 and 3. They're not saying that belief in God or even the Christian God makes you a moral person. That's not what the text is saying at all. Nor is this verse saying that we are as bad as we could be. This verse is saying that in spite of you believing in God, in spite of you believing in God, either in a very specific sense or in a vague sense, we are all lost. We're all dead. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans when he talks about all who have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, these verses condemn not just the worst person we know, but the best, most holy people we know. These verses condemn not just the unbeliever, but the Christian person, the moral person, the Buddhist person. This is a condemnation, not of just those outside the church, but within the church. All of us here, our pastors, me preaching to you, everybody in car as kids, the kids in car as kids, your kids, your mom, your grandma. And no, this passage is not saying that we're as bad as we could be. God gives us what's called common grace. He uses the law. He uses a conscience uses other people, other means to restrain evil all the time. In fact, he, he actually uses the own evil in our hearts to restrain the evil in our hearts. Here's what I mean. Have you ever seen a kid who basically was so bent on destroying another kid that you had to offer them candy to stop so that they won't destroy the other kid? You literally have to appeal to their selfishness to get them to stop being so selfish. And sometimes it works. My point is not that we are as bad as we could be, but the point is that you've never met a man as good as he ought to be. This is a God's eye view. So I know this probably isn't the self-esteem boost that you were looking for. Um, (laughs) You came to church this morning, right? Like, imagine putting this first three on a birthday card, right? Like, nobody's going to do that. It's not going to sell very much. Um, And this is... I'm to be honest, this is a tough pill to swallow for for most of us, right? Because on the one hand, we live in a world in which there are no objective morals, right? Because there is no God. And then on the other hand, we live in a country obsessed with self-help and positive thinking and sending good vibes, whatever that means. I, I, I don't know if I, yeah, good vibes, whatever that means. And so this creates an environment where we overestimate our righteousness and underestimate our sin. But before I move on, I suppose I want to just ask one question of you. Why, why are you here this morning? Did you come here because you were hoping to feel better about yourself? Or were you coming here this morning to have yourself changed? Because let me submit to you this morning that what you and I need most is not self-help, not more self-esteem boost, but self. To know thyself, as John Calvin says, is to begin to know God and to know God is to begin to know thyself. C.S. Lewis hints at this in Mere Christianity. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. And when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you're awake, not while you're sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. While you are making them, you can't see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you're sober, not when you're drunk. Well, before we move on to the third point here, we've seen two things. The essence of sin... As foolishness you see the extent of sin which reaches everyone at their core and in verse 4 we see the effects of sin verse 4 we see the effects of sin and the effects of sin are that there is injustice and suffering read with me verse 4 Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat at my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? This verse is kind of loaded with an interesting sort of image or metaphor here, but basically the psalmist is describing people who have rebelled against God. They don't know God, not in any sort of intimate, relational way, and they don't call upon Him. They refuse to call upon Him. And it's this lack of right relationship with the Lord that breaks down the relationships in society with neighbor. And the psalmist here, he's using this, this image of eating bread. right? And this image combined with the mention of the poor in verse 6 is describing a way in which people destroy and oppress each other. And in fact, it's describing the ease at which people destroy and oppress each other. It, they don't feel any guilt over it. It's as easy and it's as simple as eating bread. Don't even have to think about it. Now, this may not be us in America who suffer a lot of oppression and you know, injustices like that. It certainly does happen. Um, but this is probably more relevant to Christian missionary and you know, the Middle East or in Asia or somewhere like that, right? Where you can be thrown in jail for being a Christian. You can be thrown in jail for trying to evangelize people. You can be thrown in jail for bringing a Bible into that country or nation. But a God's eye view keeps us from only looking at the ways in which Christians are persecuted and suffer. A God's eye view reminds us that we, Christians, generally speaking, have sometimes caused other people to suffer. And oftentimes have even been great perpetrators of injustice. And sad to say that history offers us one too many examples. Whether it be the religious leaders in the major and minor prophets in Isaiah and Malachi and elsewhere who basically take advantage of their, their, their position as priests to, to oppress others, or whether it be the Pharisees in Jesus' day who care more about tradition than they do about loving God and loving neighbor. Or we could look at the racism and the slavery that was practiced in America that led to millions of people suffering. Or we could just look at all the times that Christians stand back and do nothing. And oftentimes just consume, consume, and waste, and waste, without caring at all, really, about who that impacts. It doesn't matter because we don't see it. We throw trash on the floor at, you know, this building or that building or in the park. And it doesn't matter to us because we don't have to clean it up, Right? not realizing that it all goes somewhere it all impacts somebody in some capacity it's as easy as eating bread we don't have to really think about it but once again a god's eye view shows us that we're all co-conspirators we are the reason they're suffering in the world we are the reason that things are messed up when the psalmist uses the word corrupted it says that we have all turned aside It's as though he's saying the whole batch has been spoiled and it's starting to stink up the entire house. Once again, I'm talking about everybody here, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you call yourself Christian or not. This can happen. This sort of corrupting influence of sin can happen in in a myriad of ways, really, and and I just want to give one briefly. Partly because it's so easy To unpack. So, think about slavery, for example, right? Why did slavery happen? Well, at one level, you could say, well, because people created laws that allowed it. Fair enough. But on the other end of the spectrum, or on a different level, slavery happens because most people just think it's okay. Most people just aren't really that concerned. And then at the middle level, you have People like the slave masters who actually oppress and enforce the evil. And you have to have all three working together. You can't have, particularly in America, slavery practice where people aren't voting for the slaveholders. And you wouldn't have people who voted for the slaveholders if people didn't think slavery was good or okay. All three have to work together. And so the implication of this verse, before we move to our final point, is that we should be humble. We shouldn't ever consider ourselves better than anyone else. We all play a role in sin. We all play a role in the fallenness and the brokenness in the world. In other words, Christians should never be the kind of people who says, wow, I can't believe they did that. I would would never do such a thing. Christians can't do that. Christians can't say, oh, I would have never turned a blind out of slavery. Yes, you would have. Because most Christians did. Christians can never be the kind of person who says, well, I would never cheat on my wife. I would never get a divorce. I would never throw away my life to doing drugs. I would never plan to murder someone. I can never understand somebody. Yes. You could be that person. The only thing between you and them is God's mercy. That's it. It's not your background. It's not your education. It's not your own will. It's not your parents. It's God's mercy. Well, let's move on to one final point. We've seen the essence of sin. We've seen the extent of sin. And we've seen the effects of sin. Now, in verses 5 through 7, I want to draw out the hope for sinners. The hope for sinners. Verse 5. There they are in great terror. For for God is with the generation of the righteous. You ashamed the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of his eyes. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel, let Israel be glad. It's in these verses that we are introduced to a tension in the text. You see, up until this point, we've been given what I'm calling a God's eye view of sin. And of course, if that's all I said, and I just said, okay, well, go home, you would probably be just a little confused, right? Because you could easily say, well, what's the point of it all? Like, if I'm a sinner, they're a sinner, we're all sinners, yay, What's the point of it? Like, Well, we find one word, just one word, that changes everything. And it's this word righteous, in verse 5. And God says he's with them. He's with the righteous. So, so apparently there, there's a way to become righteous, at least in some sense. Apparently, you can become righteous despite being a sinner. Well, this is the longing that the psalmist is speaking of in verse 7, right? He's longing for salvation. He's longing for people to be rescued from the sin that's in the world and in them. Salvation, salvation according to verse 7 here, is, is being found with God. Being found in God. It's the Lord being your refuge. It's the Lord being your hiding place. It's the Lord being your shelter. That's what it means to be saved from sin. In God. Running to Him. Hiding yourself in Him. Or His righteousness. Righteousness with the hopes that His righteousness will cover you. But here's the thing. If the essence of sin is foolishly denying God, then it's impossible to call upon the Lord and pray to Him. And if the width and the depth of sin means that no one seeks after God, then how could we ever know Him? And if the effects of sin are loving evil, then it could be To to be confronted with a perfectly good God is terrifying. Here's what this means. This means salvation is totally Mm -hmm. and utterly a gift. Totally and utterly a gift. The hope for sinners is God's sovereign Grace. This means the only way sinners who run away from God are ever saved is if God runs to them. This means the only way ignorant people are saved is if God first makes himself known to us. This is what I mean by sovereign grace. It's God's initiation. It's God's coming after us first in love. Right? Right? You see, the gospel is not that the Lord looks down from heaven and sees sinners and just leaves us alone. Nor is the gospel that God looks down from heaven and says, man, these guys really got some potential. I can't wait to work with them. No, no, no. No. The gospel is that the Lord looks down from heaven and he comes down. And this is exactly what we have in Christ. Jesus comes down from heaven. God made man. And you know what? We are so sinful that we killed him. But it's on the cross where Jesus becomes sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so then He gives us His righteousness, and now we are simultaneously sinner yet justified. Sinner and saint. Sinner and righteous. This is wonderful. This is wonderful because it's the Christ that lives in you, that transforms you, not from being an immoral person to just being a moral person. He transforms you from being a dead person into alive. And so now the good that we do in us is not us, but it's the Christ working in us. So God gets the glory and we get the joy always. You see, if you don't, if you don't see the difference between this this gospel and moralism and self-esteem then you got to come back next week
1: we'll get
0: you we'll make it clear i promise so if you just remember one thing from today's sermon let it be this that sinful people need sovereign grace as i get ready to close here i just want to give us one point of application in terms of, like, something you can do moving forward, and, and it's, it's evangelistic in nature, okay? Um, as you go forth and tell people about this grace, and, and, and you know what? You're, you're nervous because you're like, what are they going to think if I tell them that there's sin, and that there's God, and that there's hell, and that there's Jesus, and that there's miracles, and that there's this book that's totally true and perfect, even though they probably don't believe it. Here's here's what I want to tell you as we close and as we apply this. Put your utmost confidence in God's word to save people. Nothing else. Nothing else. Not their intellect. Not their gender. Not not their background. Not how they're dressing. not, Not if they were raised in church or not. Just, just just, just, put it in this book. Just put it in, in the words that, that are found in here that are able to make people come alive. Regardless of what people say, it still transforms people. It still saves people. It still does its work. There are divine qualities and there's a divine beauty found in this book. And it's an opening, this book, that the heart has changed, that they can can see it for what it is. An example of what I mean is is this. Uh, Dr. Kruger, a New Testament scholar, he gives this example when he's talking about um, the nature of God's Word. And and, and the way in which we oftentimes foolishly just sort of give up on trusting in God's Word people don't believe it. This is the example that he gives. He says, there's this experiment done in Washington, D.C. with the famous violinist Joshua Bell. And he's basically one of the most talented violinists ever. um, At least in our generation. And so he's in Washington, D.C. during, you know, rush hour in this subway. He's playing this million dollar violin, however much it's worth. And he's just like destroying it, right? And He's playing these complicated pieces from Beethoven, Mozart, whomever. And he's playing for eight hours. Eight hours, right? A few people come by, put some money in there, and by the end of those eight hours, guess how much money he made? 32 bucks. 32 bucks. Now, he makes 32 bucks in five seconds at a concert hall, right? Now, it would be really stupid if he went home to his wife and said, My gosh, Jane, whatever her name is. (laughs) You know what? I think I should probably just give up playing violin because the other day I was in D.C. I was playing violin. Nobody really cared. People just passed by. I only made 32 bucks. I feel like I'm probably pretty bad at this. Now, we would never respond to him and say, Yep, throw it away. Time to give up. You're actually pretty bad. No. Because just because everybody and their mama don't see this talent pouring out of this man, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have the talent. The problem is with them. They don't have the eyes to see it. They don't have the ears. They haven't been acquainted with the music. It's not him. Likewise, it's not the word. Just because people disagree doesn't mean that there's not any beauty in here. They simply need to be acquainted with the music. The glory. And that's what happens every time you boldly, even if it's just a little bit, speak of Christ and His goodness. And so, brothers and sisters, be encouraged that we have a God who gives sovereign grace, who saves us, who opens up our minds to see the beauty in His Word. Um, I want to close us with reading Romans uh, 8, verses 1-11, through 11, and then I want to go ahead and take communion. And, and if you don't have um, one of these, go ahead and grab one right now. Um, but I'm going to close this off by reading Romans uh, 8, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, when speaking of the new man in Christ, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. It doesn't submit to God, to this law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, you, you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. As we take communion today, um, I just want to remind us that.